You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, this is the final sermon in a series of sermons we've been preaching this Lent on the book of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet from a small town in Galilee who counseled King Jeroboam II during a conflict with the Syrians. So it turns out that the Pharisees were wrong when they proclaimed in John's Gospel that no prophet arises from Galilee. So since we're at the end of the book, let's recap what's happened so far. God commands Jonah to go east to Nineveh, and Jonah catches the next ship sailing west. Why? Because Jonah knows God wants for him to call for the Ninevites to repent. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and the Assyrians had conquered Israel some years before, destroyed many of its cities, and taken its best and brightest into exile. The Assyrians were so hated by the Israelites that the entire purpose of the Old Testament book of Nahum is to describe in gory detail the wickedness of this city. Nahum 2.10 talks about devastation, desolation, and destruction coming to Nineveh. So it's no surprise that Jonah wasn't keen on heading off to Nineveh to preach to these enemies of Israel. Frederick Buechner writes, when God ordered him to go to Nineveh and tell them there to shape up and get saved, the expression on Jonah's face was that of a man who has just gotten a whiff of trouble in his septic tank. <laughs> in the first place, the Ninevites were foreigners and thus off his beat. In the second place, Far from wanting to see them get saved, nothing would have pleased them more than to see them get what he thought they had coming to them. The very idea of their repentance was unthinkable, not only because it would be so totally unexpected, but because they would be the last people in the world that most Israelites would want God to forgive. God's asking Jonah to preach to the people in Nineveh would be as if a Jew who had lost family in the Holocaust were asked to undertake a mission to Nazi Germany. So once Jonah boards the ship, he causes trouble for the captain and crew, has to be thrown overboard, is swallowed by a giant fish, and after spending three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, he finally turns to God in prayer for deliverance. And God listens, and God responds, causing the fish to spew Jonah up upon dry land. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And this time Jonah obeys, albeit grudgingly. He cries out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. But then it happens. In spite of his own reluctance, in spite of the fact, in spite of his minimal effort and lack of enthusiasm for this task, in spite of the fact that he's a stranger preaching words of judgment, he, his worst nightmare comes true. Jonah actually wins over his audience with a sermon consisting of only five Hebrew words. 
the king and the people of Nineveh and even the animals actually repent when they hear of God's impending judgment so that God changes his mind about condemning the city. And that brings us to our text for today. Chapter 4 begins with a profound little word, but. When you hear the word but, you know you're in for a change of direction. Uh, the running back, zigzag, 99 yards for the greatest touchdown run of his life. But the official threw a flag for holding, and the play was called back. Uh, the student had spent countless hours working on her honors thesis, but she neglected to print it out before her laptop crashed. That's a great idea, but... Aegis Fernando notes, there are glorious buts in scripture, but this is an inglorious but. Verse one says, but this was very displeasing to Jonah and he became angry. God has miraculously worked and shown his mercy to the people of Nineveh, but God's very own prophet was angry and revolts. As a Jew, his identity was that of a child of Abraham, God's chosen people. For Jonah, this identity had transitioned into racism because he forgot that God chose the people of Israel in order to be a blessing to the whole world. He had forgotten that he did not deserve uh, mercy or salvation either. This uh, past February, I had a chance to go on a mission tour of Southeast Asia. And while being driven around Phnom Penh, Cambodia, I was struck by the traffic and the driving habits of the residents. I mean, instead of clear and ordered lanes with traffic lights, it was this giant blob of cars and trucks and motorcycles all coming together with seemingly no rhyme or reason. Yet it worked. As I remarked how different this was from the US, our driver, Pastor Hung, said, oh, it's same, same, but different. <laughs> and I learned that's a common saying in Cambodia. We even saw a t-shirt with the saying at the airport. And it eventually became a joke among us as we realized how many things are same, same, but different. People in Cambodia and the U.S. are same, same. We're all made in the image of God, but we're different, different ethnicities, different languages and cultures. The church in Southeast Asia is same, same. We worship the same God, but it's different. It's expressed differently. The traffic in Phnom Penh was same, same as the U.S., right? After all, both places have motor vehicles on the road. But the way they drove, the crowded conditions, the chaos, the lack of traffic lights were all different. And I thought that was a good way of thinking about how Jonah related to the Ninevites. Jonah focused on the different. The Ninevites were a different ethnic group that had oppressed the Israelites. So he had no trouble wanting God to punish them they were the enemy, so Jonah didn't want any relationship with them or for them to experience God's grace. 
But Jonah did not want to see the same thing, that God's love and grace also extended to them. Now, the reason this works in Cambodia is because it's balanced. You need both the same same and the different together. There's a recognition that we're all the same. We're all human beings loved by God. We're all connected. But the differences are what make multi-ethnic communities so rich in the kingdom of God. All right, let's get back to our story. The irony continues with Jonah's reaction to the success of his preaching. You know, when revival happens, the, the preacher is usually the most overjoyed. But Jonah is very displeased and became angry. God has worked a miracle through Jonah, but Jonah's reaction is, shoot. That's just like God to pull a stunt like this. I mean, imagine being merciful and gracious to barbarians like these. But in this divine comedy, the joke is on Jonah, for that's precisely what happens. And Jonah, in an over-the-top, dramatic manner, claims three different times that he's angry enough to die. His anger is assuaged when God appoints a bush to give him shade, but it returns with a vengeance when God appoints a worm to attack that bush and the sun beats down on Jonah's head. His anger blinds him from seeing the greater good, that God is concerned about a great city with 120,000 people. Jonah is more upset about the sun, the bush, and the worm than all of those people. Now, as I read the book of Jonah in preparation for this sermon, I'm a little embarrassed to admit that at first, I actually identified with Jonah. Uh, because I was well aware of how terribly the Assyrians had treated the Israelites. How can a God of justice love people who have been so unjust and who have oppressed Israel so much? It turns out I'm not alone in asking that question. In a book titled Liberating Jonah, Miguel de la Torre writes, Jonah was repelled by a God who, quote-unquote, cheapened mercy in order to spare oppressors. Thus, as God's wrath ended, Jonah's wrath began. Jonah is aware that God's message is one of redemption for both the oppressor and the oppressed. De La Torre notes that in this instance, God appears to be unjust, for to forgive an oppressor appears contrary to any sense of justice. So Jonah asks questions like, why are oppressors not punished? Why do they so often flourish? How can justice exist if oppressors are shown mercy and forgiveness? Those are good questions. It's appropriate that we ask those questions today on Palm Sunday, because we find the answer in Jesus. Earl Palmer says that the Bible always points towards its living center, the Old Testament in anticipation and the New Testament in fulfillment. The book of Jonah ends with a question 
God asked, should I not be concerned about this great city, uh, Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people? The book ends without telling us Jonah's response. But Palm Sunday answers the question that ends the book of Jonah. It tells us God's response. Yes, God is concerned for Nineveh. And if God is concerned for a place like Nineveh, then he's concerned for everyone. It's a good reminder, again, that while Israel is indeed God's chosen people, they were chosen for a reason, to be a blessing to the whole world. Now, by the time of Jesus, the Jews had at least three great yearnings. They yearned for a father like Abraham. They yearned for a deliverer like Moses. And they yearned for a king like David. Jesus fulfills these profound longings, although often in ways that surprised and even disappointed the people he came to deliver. For instance, the people of Israel longed for someone who would chase out the Roman oppressors and punish the wrongdoers. They expected the Messiah to be a king like David, someone who would come and conquer. But nobody expected that Jesus Christ himself would take the place of the wrongdoers and be the suffering servant. Jesus Christ defied people's expectations. But Palm Sunday shows he also fulfilled them, and he still does. A great crowd came out into the streets of Jerusalem, and for a moment, they recognized who Jesus was, the Messiah, a father like Abraham who assured them of their identity as God's children, a deliverer like Moses. The crowd shouted out, Hosanna, save us please, and a king from David's line. We shouldn't discount the crowd because they forgot who he was by Thursday. The point is that for that moment, they saw that Jesus was the one who fulfills our identities, the one who in surprising ways delivers us, the one who is our king. And this is a Messiah who definitely fulfills the story of Jonah. In the New Testament, Jonah is mentioned only in Matthew and in Luke. In both of those Gospels, the one sign that Jesus gave to prove his identity as the Messiah was the sign of Jonah. Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so for three days and three nights the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. The people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah. And see, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was God's prophet who had a difficult time obeying God's commands. Jesus is greater than Jonah. While Jonah was unable to love his enemies, Jesus loves his enemies enough to die on their behalf. He took all of Jonah's hatred, his racism, his bitterness. He took it upon himself. He took all of our sins, both the oppressed and the, 
and the oppressors and absorb them on the cross so that forgiveness and reconciliation became possible. How do we love our enemies? By remembering that, as the Apostle Paul wrote, God proved his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. By remembering that we were beloved first, and since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. Nothing else can integrate all the parts of our lives and fulfill our yearnings for identity, deliverance, and life. Even good things can't bear the weight of these yearnings. Yourself, your family, your, your money and power, your, your nation, they're all good things, but they're not great enough to save you. Only Jesus Christ is able to fulfill us and integrate every part of our lives. He is the door to abundant life. And the Palm Sunday crowds saw it. That's why Jesus was greater than Jonah. Jonah asked, God, are you serious about saving the Ninevites? Even them? After all the evil that they've done? And God says, yes. Even them, my love extends to all people. Because of Jesus, we're empowered to see the world not only in anticipation of the Messiah coming, but also in fulfillment that he has already come. We're empowered to see the world in the light of Jesus Christ through graceful eyes. We're empowered to see people as God intends them to be, and therefore to love them, even if they are our enemies. What does it look like to love people as Jesus loved them? Was well, far easier said than done. But here and there, now and then, we find powerful examples of individuals managing to demonstrate amazing grace and to show love to their enemies. Uh, one of my very good friends is Dr. Binh Nguyen. He's actually sitting here with us in service today. He's a Vietnamese pastor on staff at Seattle Presbytery who's been instrumental in helping to establish the Presbyterian Church in Vietnam. Now, he shared his testimony here at UPC a couple of years ago, but in case you missed it, I wanted to share it with you again. So Ben had been teaching courses on religion and against communism at the National Training Center in Vietnam when Saigon fell to the communists in 1975. Not surprisingly, the communists quickly took him to what was euphemistically called a re-education camp, where he was imprisoned for six long years, including 18 months in an isolation cell. Now, I had a chance to travel with Ben uh, to Vietnam back in 2013, and one of our stops was at the Hanoi Hilton, the prison where John McCain and other American soldiers were imprisoned. I have some pictures to show you on the screen. That's John McCain's flight suit. They have that on display there. And the next slide is a picture of one of the cells at the Hanoi Hilton prison. It's funny, when, when we looked at the cell where McCain was held, 
I remember Ben joking that we were looking at a first-class cell because the cell he was placed in was about half the size. Ben's cell had no light and no windows. It was totally dark. There was no fresh air, and it was very hot. And he was provided only one liter of water and six to eight tablespoons of food every day. And every day, he was beaten and tortured. But somehow, in spite of those conditions, he heard God's voice. God actually taught him to love his enemies by reminding him of the time Jesus was arrested. As Ben puts it, Jesus was mocked and beaten. I was beaten, but I was not mocked. Jesus was thirsty, but had no water. I at least had some water. Jesus was hungry and had no food. I only had a little bit of food, but it was more than Jesus had. Jesus carried his own cross and died shamefully on it. Even though I was in prison, I did not die. And Jesus' enemies treated him horribly, yet Jesus forgave and loved them. I claimed that I was his follower, yet I did not want to carry my own cross and treat my enemies the same way that Jesus did. These thoughts helped me to have compassion for my enemies and finally to love them. So, so Ben started to smile at his guards every time they came in. And at first, this kind of backfired on him because the guards thought that he was making fun of them. But eventually, he was able to convince them that he truly wanted to show them love. Transformed by the love of Jesus that Ben shared with them, they stopped beating him and started treating him with more kindness, even eventually giving him back his eyeglasses. Now, if Ben's story had ended the way Jonah's did, it would make perfect sense to me. It's hard to love your enemies. Ben would have been entirely justified refusing to show any kindness or grace to these people who did such evil things to him. We might expect a Jonah-like refusal to believe that God's grace could be extended even to them. But Ben chose Jesus, not Jonah, as his example. Whenever anyone is able to love their enemies, we can bet that God is involved because only God could give someone the grace to show love in the face of hate or kindness in the face of cruelty. One commentator writes, love is more powerful than fear could ever be. We must believe that love literally wins the day. It won on the cross. It conquers nations. It melts hard hearts. Love is the very essence and nature of God. Jesus was love in the flesh. Love beats sin and death, not the other way around. So it's appropriate that our personal challenge this week for the Kindred Project is to look for and love someone different from us. After all, we can be sure they're also same thing, right? To love God is to love what he loves, people. It doesn't matter if there are enemies. Now, this can be challenging, but it's possible 
because someone greater than Jonah has come, Jesus Christ. Brenda Salter McNeil and Rick Richardson write, ultimately, only one power in the world can solve the problem of evil. Only the power of the cross, only the life and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth can open the way of life, hope, and reconciliation. That's what we remember as we commemorate the last week of Jesus' life. Welcome to Holy Week. Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love all people and that you're concerned not only with the people of Israel, but also the people of Nineveh. Lord Jesus, you took on betrayal and humiliation and pain and fear and rejection and execution on our behalf. With sheer grace and deep love, you taught us that even our most terrible moments can be redeemed. Grant us the strength to seek out and to show love to those around us, even those who we perceive to be our enemies. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.